Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's latest global developments. My name is Alec, and I have Joshua Cheatham on the line. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, Poland stopping their supply of weapons to Ukraine, as well as the Saudi Arabia and uh, Israel, Israeli uh, close to nor uh, relations normalization. So, some pretty good topics um, to be discussing today. So, we're going to go straight into it. Make sure to follow us. Uh, on our social medias. Uh, we're pretty much everywhere. And most importantly, our website. Please visit our website. We have a bunch of good, juicy articles for you guys to read um, at www.ngfnews.com. So let's get straight into it. Uh, Poland has stopped sending arms to Ukraine amid a trade dispute and military modernization efforts. Uh, Prime Minister, I'm going to butcher this, Mateusz Morawiecki, uh, mentioned that Poland is focusing on modernizing its military due to concerns about Russian aggression in the region. Uh, Poland has uh, clarified that they will still provide uh, the previously agreed upon ammunition and armaments to Ukraine, which pretty much include Soviet-era kind of tanks. So they're trying to just get rid of their old weapons to modernize uh, their military. That's That's basically what that means when they say they're going to continue providing arms and arms to ukraine yeah and poland like has been a pretty big part of the war for the most part they've already sent 320 soviet area tanks 14 mig 29 fighter jets and they're continuing to send uh another a uh, weapon the crab artillery weapons that are still going to be uh sent over to the ukrainians in terms of being able to you know fight off uh, anti-armor uh, machinery, but this is a, I think, a wave of what's going to be, we're going to be seeing in Western Europe uh, towards the latter half of this war. It's been going on for just over two years now, and because of the grain deal and the volatility of it for uh, Eastern Europe and how they're not unable to get Ukrainian grain, countries like Hungary and Slovakia, Poland, Lithuania, Romania, we may see a decrease in funding for the Ukrainians. I don't know what to think of it, whether good, whether bad. I mean, still have the Germans who are going to be funding high amounts of weaponry. The, you have the French, you have the Canadians, you have the United States, of course, and the United Kingdom. But Eastern Europe has been a significant donor, so this could be a big loss. Um, like you said, it might be the start of something. What I see this as the the right kind of wave coming into Europe. Uh, Poland has stopped its support because of, I think, uh, political reasons. Um, the Polish prime minister, I think re-elections are coming up soon, and he wants to show to the conservative party, listen, I still care about Poland, and Poland is still my priority. My guess is, is if if he is re-elected again, he is going to recontinue his uh, support effort towards Ukraine. Or... For Ru in Russia's eyes, they see that this could be the start of Western support cracking, and I don't want that to happen. I don't. I hope that's not what's happening, and this is purely just politics. This all kind of stemmed from the grain situation, where um, grains were flooding domestic markets and um, undercutting the um, domestic agricultural uh, grain in both Poland. What was it? You said Hungary, Slovakia. Slovakia, Romania, I mean, most of Eastern Europe. Oh, yeah. So this kind of all stems from that. And my guess is that this is just some uh, political game that they want to protect their, their farmers. And then after this all blows over, I, I believe that they're going to go back into, after they've modernized or whatever it is, go ahead and provide 
weapons to Ukraine again. I think their biggest seller is if Russia um, kind of counters the counter offense going on. Right now, there's been a big stalemate for a while now um, in Ukraine. So if there's if there are some signs showing that the Ukrainian counteroffensive is cracking, uh, I believe that we're going to see these countries step up again. Um, maybe not in the way that they used to before, but they might just return to providing some sort of weapons, is my yeah. guess. And that's a good point that you make because, you know, Poland uses it under the guise of we want to modernize our military by getting rid of older Soviet area uh, armory and artillery, which makes sense. It's it's understandable that a country that is very close to Russia wants to modernize just in case of a potential Russian invasion on their half. Um, but you all, the, the other good point that you made was the the conservative and the populist wave. Uh, I mean, Eastern Europe and Western Europe are feeling it, and so there's a potential that a lot of governments. Eastern Europe is already fairly conservative, but a lot of governments in Western Europe could go conservative in this next election cycle or have a very large coalition of conservatives and populists in this next election cycle. Spain is just one example. Italy is another example. The United Kingdom is an example. We could come see it from France, could see it from Germany. We could see it, heck, in Sweden, which is very, <laughs> very, I mean, not concerning in terms of how they run their government, but concerning in the fact that they don't want to, they don't want to fund Ukraine. The populists don't want to fund Ukraine they want to focus on what's happening at home. And so that could be the, the, the place that overturns the, um, the, the war effort. Now we have seen that Italy and the United Kingdom in their cases, whom are conservative majorities, they did not stop their funding, but, the the difference between the United Kingdom and Italy versus Poland, Hungary and Austria and, and Slovakia and the Czech Republic and Cro Croatia is that United Kingdom and Italy have money and they have a very large defense industry who are continuing to grow. So the, that's that's the major difference. And so I think Poland and, and the rest of Eastern Europe, they may – changed their mind because they don't have that defense industry yet correct and what i'm also thinking is these new conservatives coming into into europe uh my guess is they're going to see how low they can go before they need to go back and um start resupplying ukraine but my theory is that these conservatives want to focus as much as possible uh, on their own country but right to the threshold where are supporting Ukraine, but most of their most of their focus is on their own country, and uh, their their focus has been their own country. It's never it's never been Ukraine first or their country first because this world operates has been operating on self interest always. There's been yes. a self interest for all countries that have supplied Ukraine. Otherwise, they wouldn't have joined the effort. And of course, NATO's uh, interest is basically to protect Europe. That's that's their interest, and for Poland to stop doing that, they're going to be, they're going, they're going to be in a tricky situation um, if they don't modernize quick enough. And I, I'm just, I'm theorizing that they're trying to test the threshold and seeing how how much they can stop before they actually need to to stay in Ukraine, if if that makes sense. 
Josh? They, they, they absolutely are uh, testing the threshold for sure. And another thing I want to bring up is we, we brought up a lot of different points on the, the things that could happen um, potentially in the future in terms of the conservative wave in Europe. But for me, I think it's a lot – I think it's all overblown. I, I truly – now, the, the conservative and populist movement, I don't think that's overblown. I think that's that's going to come to a lot of countries in Europe. But what I think is overblown is the fact that those populist governments are going to solely focus on themselves. Case A is the Italian prime minister, and case B is, is Boris Johnson and the Sudic. They are conservative majorities whom were told, you know, uh, United Kingdom first, Italy first. You know, we're going to stop the immigrants from coming in. We're going to you know, focus on, on Italian policy. Well, that's just been the opposite case. They've been funding this war in Ukraine. In fact, the United Kingdom is the third large – no, sorry, the fourth largest uh, funder of the war. And I think Italy's the, the seventh. So that that I don't think I think this is overblown. I think what the articles and the writers of the article and the BBC and the couple that I read are trying to to are overblowing what is there's just not there. Poland wants to modernize their army so that they can be a better prepared for a potential Russian invasion, but also probably better prepared to help Ukraine because this war is not ending anytime soon, unfortunately, but it's not ending anytime soon. And I think what they're trying to do is focus to be able to provide in the future. And they're still providing Soviet tanks and the artillery weapons. So it's not like they're just dumping out of the, the race entirely. They're, they're, they're still there. They're just going to be putting on a little bit of a backburn. And what I'm thinking is, what now that you're bringing this up, Poland has always been the biggest supporter of Ukraine. They were the first to intake refugees and uh, help Ukraine out. So, what what you're saying is is kind of, is making sense because why would they pull out at a time of their counteroffensive? What I think is happening is they're seeing the U.S. support to Ukraine and they're going, okay, we're going to see how much support is enough for them to hold it down until we can modernize our own military. You get what I'm saying? So they're, they're letting yeah. the U.S. Uh, and these major players um, fund as much as possible. They're going to pull back and let the kind of the U.S. handle it and then go back into it with more modern weapons to really get that counteroffensive going. So that's I think that's the strategic game they're playing here. Absolutely. And and one of the, the biggest things that we can – look at too to to show the strategic game of nato is their recent uh training mission that they did together where they used state-of-the-art simulations to see exactly how a russian uh invasion would simulate if they were to go into poland poland's the they're like the first people there along with lithuania romania and a couple others they're the first people on that line once if ukraine falls and they decide to invade uh NATO countries. So why is it that they would pull out now? They're not going to. Poland is not going to fully pull out. They're just going to re-strategize and re-modernize. Yeah, fully agree. And for Russia, they, they think that this is the, the start, um, the beginning to the end for Western support. And it seems like, to, in Russia's eyes, uh, that Western support is starting to crack. But the U.S., and other major players are still – we're still – I think we just approved another – what is it, $360 million, um, for a Ukraine? Lot, yeah. Yeah, a it, lot, yeah. It's a lot of money, and even 
the the support within the United States and how much money we're sending Ukraine is starting to become questionable uh, amongst constituents. But in in the eyes of Russia, Western support is cracking, but Western support, in my eyes, just seems to be kind of re-strategizing and helping Ukraine get to that push because the biggest issue is there has been no major movements and the line of uh, territorial gain has just been the same. So I, I think the Western strategy now is to, to figure out ways to get Russia fully out of Ukraine and how long, um, which side would crack first? Will it be Russia's patience or will it be Western patience? Yeah, well, I definitely don't think it's going to be Western patience because we just, we, we have an unlimited supply of everything. So there's no way the Russians can keep up. We somehow do. We somehow do have an unlimited supply of everything Yeah, is what it seems. Yeah. Um, but I don't have anything else uh, on that. If you want to go into the Saudi Arabia and Israel, 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 yeah. Israel. Well, this is such good news. Good news to the point when I looked at it, like my jaw kind of dropped at the fact that the Saudis are discussing any sort of normalization with Israel. Mohammed bin Salman, the prince, uh, basically made a statement to Fox News. Every day we get closer to normalizing relations. The only real big thing right now that's, and this is probably been the biggest thing for the past you know 30 years is obviously the Palestinian issue whether or not there's going to be a two-state solution what what are they going to do to resolve that issue but the fact that they are sitting down in a room with the most conservative Israeli government ever is beyond belief right now in the United States you know bravo to them for even being able to get these talks hosted in the first place and mediated and and bravo to both sides in Israel and Saudi Arabia. You know, what are the future now? What's the future for this, the the Middle East? Yeah, that's that that's what I asked myself. And when I first saw the headline, I was I, I was very happy because a normalization of relations in the Middle East. I mean, imagine what what could happen. Uh, a more modern Middle East, a more a more powerful Middle East, a coalition amongst Middle Eastern countries. It, the Middle East has been such a difficult place, and now we're seeing the beginning of something new and something amazing, where we're going to see development, we're going to see kind of freedom, economics moving. It's it's all pieces of the puzzle, and all stems from this normalization uh, of relations between Israel and um, Saudi Arabia. But like you said, the biggest talking point is Palestine. And the two-state solution. And with this current conservative government, it's it's not looking like he uh, Netanyahu wants to. That's how you say his name, right? Close enough. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It seems like Netanyahu is not so adamant on working on a two-state solution just yet, because of the this pure far. It's I would say, in my opinion, very very right conservatism in Israel. Yeah. And I'm not sure how Israel will make this work. That's the question of the hour, really, because there's, there's so much political turmoil within the country as well. The reforming of their judicial system, the firing of their, def uh, was it the, yeah, it was their defense minister. And, and then you have to deal with, you know, Palestine and, and, and Hezbollah being 
the terrorist organization that's going against Israel and then the Israelis who are, you know, really, you know, hurting and killing Palestinian people. Um, and, and I don't think it's by anyone's fault. Of course, they're, they're at the middle of, a, of what, what I call a war, um, but violence, increased violence. But it's going to be very difficult because establishing, you know, a peace agreement, establishing relations is one thing. Um, but establishing what King's, King Solomon is looking as a, or Prince Solomon is looking for a peace agreement. That's the, you know, the big woozy. Because normalization of relations is okay. Yeah, that's I don't think that's going to be an issue. I think they're going to have diplomatic relations with Israel. And I think Iran might even get another deal after Saudi Arabia and Iran normalize their relations. The peace deal, that's going to be the biggest for lack of a better term, piece to the puzzle um, because Palestine is just so polarized for both sides. Obviously, with the big Muslim population, the Islam world, they want the two-state solution. So, The two-state solution has been proposed since the Oslo Accords and Israel's still in the West Bank. I think it's time for Israel to recognize that. Israel and Palestine as to is is essential for the Middle East. And I think what the U.S. Is, is not doing during these talks is they're not highlighting the importance of Middle Eastern development. Uh, no one knows exactly for sure what's going on in those talks. All we know is that uh, Saudi Crown Prince Sa Salman is very happy with the progress. And the only way to, to finalize these talks is through the two-state solution. Yeah. And I think I think it's time we put the pressure on Israel um, for the two-state solution. Will they agree with it, and will they will it hurt U.S.-Israel relations? Yes, it would, uh, if, if we start putting the pressure on them to figure out a two-state solution. But it's it's been over 30 years um, and an unsolved issue, and the, the solution has been the same for 30 years. There's been no differences in, in negotiations and how to divide up the West Bank or, or, or redrawing up borders. It's been the same thing. They want yeah. that piece. Israel wants that. And I think it's time we, we put the pressure, um, yeah. in my opinion. I think they I need agree. to understand that. I think they need to understand that we need to focus more on the future and understanding that Middle Eastern peace is crucial for globalization. Um, in general, but that's a long shot, and that's something that Israel will not be too happy with. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to figure out how to screen share right now because we're on YouTube, and I'm going to show our viewers uh, a map of the uh, West bottom. Gaza Strip. Bottom, there's a share and a screen. Yeah, West Bank. For all those on Spotify, Apple, and uh, those, we're on uh, YouTube. Uh, we're on YouTube as well, so you could be watching our. Oh, perfect. Look yeah. at that. So this is on the BBC. So the biggest contention is clearly the religious holy land, Jerusalem. Now, this is why exactly why the Israelis are fighting and why the, uh, the Palestinians are fighting, because that is where both peoples believe their holy lands started on the West Bank. And so there is also a very large force here in Gaza. Now, this is where a lot of the violence happens. Uh, violence happens occurs here all the time too, but most of the violence occurs 
on the Gaza. And so this this area, I think, could be conceded easily if it were the only area. But that's the problem is the contention of Jerusalem, the religious part. I don't believe the two-state solution would have been out of reach if there wasn't such a – if the Holy Land – wasn't a part of the solution, but obviously the Holy Land being a part of the solution. Now, these are things and sentiments that you've all heard in the past. So one of the, 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 the solutions for me personally is to make Jerusalem its own, like its own entity. That mm -hmm. is a solution. I don't know if it was brought up in the Oslo Accords. It was brought up in one of the, 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 uh, I believe it was brought up in one of the, uh, uh, negotiations after the Oslo Accords of making Jerusalem Jerusalem. That is its own territory. It does not belong to the Palestinians and it does not belong to the Israelis. But then again, the, the, the problem comes that they both want to claim it for their religious reasons. But if – and I do, I do like this idea. Here's my thought, right? If we make this area not lay claim to any side how why would it still cause problems i'm trying to i'm trying to think because if it belongs to no one but it's everyone's holy i i would understand i think i understand because they both kind of there's two different religious so there's, there's a religious aspect um to that solution as well because then it's like okay under whose religion does this does this piece of land belong to? But yeah, and there'd be think, clashes all the time in Jerusalem between Muslims and Jews, uh, and even Christians. And then you know who's going to respond? You know, because if there's no government, how does the government respond? Or if there's a, a local government, like the Vatican is a, a a government, you know, how do how do they respond to violence within the area? Uh, the UN maybe a solution is the UN takes it, claims it as territory. That would be interesting if the UN could claim it as territory, and you know keep it as a, a UNESCO heritage. It is already a world heritage site, but keep it as a UNESCO territory. That could be interesting. That is very interesting. That would assume an international zone. Yeah, and that also assume over that uh, over a religious area. That's it's it's very very difficult. And you can it's see tricky. how difficult it is yeah. for, for all our for all our viewers. It's very difficult. This this problem is one of the most diplomatic, the hardest diplomatic issues to ever exist. Yeah, um, all parties have to agree. Like all like both both sides have to sit down and 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 say this this makes sense. But when you're you know, believe so much in your religion as as the Middle East and does in the case of the the Jews and both the Muslims, it, it's tough to give concessions to what you believe is your, you know, birthplace of your religion. And so that's, that's the biggest difficulty is, is the religious factor in this matter. That's where they are struggling to concede. Yeah. That, I don't even know what to say because it's just such a difficult, is there, I think but my question is, are there specific – do they lay claim to the entire territory or are there essentially pieces of uh, holy sites within Jerusalem that each side lay claims to? No, because it, if it's, you look at 
the entirety of Jerusalem? Yeah, it, it's it's the entirety of that area. So uh, go back to the map again. Um, it's because, the entirety of that area yeah, that is tough. owned by um, or well, technically sovereign territory after World War Two of Israel. So that this is technically sovereign. All of this, the lines here are technically sovereign territory of Israel. So, but this is where a very large group of Palestinians lived. If you know your history about World War Two, um, a lot of the uh, Britain created this area to be able to have the Jews that were leaving the Germans, the Germany at the time, escaping oppression from the Nazis, and they let them lay claim to this land. Now, this was started back in the early 19th century or 20th century in like 1907, post-World War, pre-World War One, but the majority of them moved during and post-World War Two to Israel and claimed this land. So that's the real difficult thing is that yeah. they moved into a place that was already had people in them, both of whom believed it was their religious rights. And yeah. Expertise. Yeah. Very difficult. Yeah. But. I still I still wonder if it's possible to make that area a a no claim zone and have Jerusalem kind of have Israel move their capital. And just have it a no, no claim zone. Anyone can enter as they please, pray as they please, worship as they please. Well, when when President Trump moved the embassy, the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, that was you know because Jerusalem wasn't the capital; it was Tel Aviv. It still is Tel right. Aviv, technically speaking. So yeah. moving the embassy to Jerusalem was a big you know, oh uh, you know. Not a concession to what the Palestinians wanted, but a you know, like what 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 can we do? That what what the United States is clearly against us, and now what can we do? The Palestinians, what can they do to to fight and and to to get their their way? And so far, that that just hasn't been happening at all. There's no way that the Palestinians can get their way at the moment. But how about this? How about we have our viewers? Answer that question in our comment section on YouTube. Yeah, I think Please. we should leave it up for discussion um, on our social medias as well. Send us a DM. Uh, what are your thoughts on this situation? But the, the only way forward for the Middle East is um, the, the two-state solution is Israel-Palestine. Will it happen? I think the two-state solution will happen sometime in, in our lifetime. Will will the issue for uh, Jerusalem and the different religious claims end? I don't think so. Uh, I think that's going to be an ongoing, ongoing issue, unfortunately. Yeah. But I think I think they're headed in the right direction, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia. And I think what they should do is they should have the entirety of Middle Eastern countries and Israel uh, kind of discuss what to do with um, Jeru uh, Jerusalem and the different religious claims and land claims. Um, without well, kind of having both the United States and another party as oversight, and then having them discuss. Of course, Middle Eastern countries are all going to push for for Palestine, but without Israel agreeing on a all mutual agreement, that's just not going. It won't happen unless all parties are in agreement. So 
Israel is kind of like the balance um, to the conversation. But yeah. I think I think there should be some sort of like convention or some sort of talk with just Middle Eastern countries and two countries to oversee it. And however long it takes is however long it takes. But it needs to be a dedicated effort. It just can't be something they review yearly. Um, they should bounce off of this conversation uh, of normalizing relations and see where they go from here with this new kind of uh, conversation. Yeah. Well, for me, I disagree with you on the thing that's going to happen in our lifetime. I think it's going to take many, many generations to, you know, dissolve, I think, the, the, the religious conflict of the area. I think religion will still play a big part in the area, but I think that it's going to take a lot of the older heads to go off, you know, and go to to heaven, wherever they are in their religious uh, areas, to for this to be solved, because a younger population population might want to reinvent their religion and make it make it different um but i do agree with you in the sense that all parties do need to sit at the table i think you need to get iran i think you need to get egypt i think you need to get uae oman uh bahrain afghanistan iraq all of them at the table and then the united states and the united kingdom as mediators you have that and it will probably result in, in better talks because they're, you're going to have multiple voices at the table and you're going to have two very powerful countries at the table that can be the mediators and, and maybe a solution can come out of it. Yeah. I totally agree. It's, yeah. it's going to take until the far right in Israel step down. And that won't be until the next elections. Yeah. Assuming that the next elections doesn't end up in a right, but we see a left. But yeah. Other than that, I don't have anything else for today. Yeah, nothing really. Right. Thank you guys right, for so, listening. Yeah, thank you all for listening. And uh, please follow us on our socials. Visit our website, ngfnews.com. Plenty of articles on there for you guys to read. We constantly upload every day. So, yeah. Yeah, and give us your takes. Always give oh, us your takes on everything we course. discuss. Great. See you all, all in the right. next one.